you please pray with me? Now, Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. So this week, we lost a modern hero of the faith. You may not have realized it, but um, an email popped up in my email account. And that hero of the faith is someone who has certainly inspired me over the years. It's a man called Brother Andrew. Uh, many of you, I think, have read the book God's Smuggling Out because I keep just giving them out and hoping people will read them and you tell me you've read them, uh, which is great. If you've not read God's Smuggler yet, I encourage you to read it. And Brother Andrew was a man, if you don't know, who smuggled Bibles behind the Iron Curtain during the, um, the very beginning of the Cold War, around about the 50s, 60s, 70s, and so on. He was a man who was willing to smuggle these in in his little Volkswagen car, little Volkswagen Beetle, and uh, get them across the border so that Christians there and non-believers could experience the Word of God and read it for themselves firsthand. And he did that at great risk. But I want to show you a little bit more about him today. So I have a video. So let's see if we can run that, Ambalad. Actually, blown your cover now, have you? You can't smuggle anymore. That's what you think. Oh, <laughs> I jumped to a conclusion. Yeah. Well, now, the first trip across, you just pulled up to the border. Is that when you prayed and said, God, uh, let the seeing not see at that time? Or was that That's what we call my smuggler's prayer when I say, Lord Jesus, when you were on earth, you've made so many blind eyes to see. Now, it's the same job for you to make seeing eyes blind, but you've got to do it now. And if he doesn't, then I've had it. I cannot outsmart the custom guards. Just think, when I pull my car in there and I get out to show my papers, I've had situations where they took four hours to search. Two fellows in the front of my vehicle, two in the rear, two underneath, and two standing there to watch the expression on my face to see if I was getting nervous. What can you do? And all the time they couldn't find the Bible? Well, I've never lost one Bible in 20 years that I've done. Praise <laughs> spoke to me again through his word. Awake, strengthen what remains, which is at the point of death. Then I understood I have to go to the Christians. I had no idea how to get there. In that one city, okay. But after that, I had no money, no contacts, no language. But something was a warning in my heart. And I said, Lord, yes, but how? I think we in the West, and this is a personal confession, I think we are cowards. We ought to become people of guts and courage and strong convictions and don't count our lives dear unto ourselves.
just did it in obedience to God's permission. It was so big and bold that endeavor. We did it in one night. Time Magazine here says it was the boldest expedition that they have ever uh, witnessed in missions. And I'm glad we were part of it. We did it, but we did it in Jesus' name. that I have come of age, more and more people ask, Andrew, what do you want written on your tombstone? I have options. One of them sounds very pious. He's not here, he's risen. Or another option is, he did what he couldn't. Or, like Oswald Chambers' gravestone, I visited that graveyard in Zaytun in Egypt. Oswald Chambers, a disciple of Jesus Christ. That gives glory to God, a disciple of Jesus Christ. Powerful, isn't it? What will be written on your gravestone? <laughs> Disciple of Jesus Christ. I mean, it would be amazing to have that on my gravestone. I share that because today we enter a series. Well, I share it partly because he died this week. <laughs> and um, I wanted to, you to know about Brother Andrew if you don't know. And again, go read his book, um, God's Smuggler. And he's written other books since as well about his work in the Middle East as well. But um, I share it also because this seemed appropriate. This week we begin a series called A Transformed Life, and it wasn't always certain that Brother Andrew would be someone who would do something like that, who would have on his gravestone a disciple of uh, Jesus written right there when he died. Because Brother Andrew went through some troubles. He was raised during uh, the time of Nazi occupation in Holland and ended up joining the Dutch resistance. And then after the war ended, he went to Indonesia and fought a war that... Uh, really meant that he had to do some things that he was not proud of in that war. And he struggled with that. And he ended up turning to alcohol and became, I would say, an alcoholic for a period of his life at least, and struggled with that. 
And all the time, though, he carried his mom's Bible with him wherever he went. And he ended up in a hospital eventually, shot in the ankle while serving in Indonesia. And um, it was at that time he encountered some Christians. And eventually, when he came back to Holland, he ended up going to a church and he encountered the Lord. And he gave his life to follow Jesus. And his life was transformed because he set his hope in God. He set his hope in God. And that's the point I want to talk about today is that a transformed life is one that sets its hope on God. In our readings today, we'll see a particular proof of this reality and one that was true in Brother Andrew's life as well, which is all about how we handle our money. How we handle our money will be a proof of whether or not our life has been transformed. You see, your bank account reveals more about your faith than your church attendance. Your bank account reveals more about your faith than your church attendance. If you ever thought about things that way, but that's what I believe. So let's turn to our scriptures. If you've got the scripture sheet handy, pull it out. You can pull out. We're going to go through all three today, so you might find it helpful to use that rather than just the screen. And did you know that in scripture there are 2,350 verses on money? 2,350 verses on money, which is more than double the amount on faith and prayer combined. Interesting, right? More than double on money. And why is that? Well, I think it's because the Lord knows that money is something that people throughout all time are going to struggle with. He knows it's going to become a barrier between us and him, so he talks about it a lot. So we're in this new sermon series on a transformed life, and I want to ask, how do we continue to set our hope on God? Well, the first reading, Deuteronomy 8, we see that it is by not forgetting but remembering, by not forgetting, but remembering. A transformed life begins with remembering what God has done. It could be what God has done on the cross in Jesus Christ. It could be what God has done through the acts of the apostles that we just studied this summer. It could be what God has done in your own life, but remembering what God has done. And when we do this, we live with trust because we see that God has always come through. We live with gratitude because we're thankful for what God has done in our lives. But when we forget, we start to live in fear. We start to live with ingratitude as well. And we forget what God has done. And we end up in a place spiraling out of control, perhaps. You know, in this passage, we hear Moses recount what God's done. Verses 11 through 16. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have your is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. You know, Moses is writing He's kind of preparing people for when they enter a time of prosperity. They've not entered the promised land, but he knows they will. And he's saying, look, when you get there and things get good, the temptation is going to be to forget all that God has done. To start to think, you know what? We did this on our own. We made it here. And it's exactly what happens. It's exactly what happens. But he says, verse 18, and they keep coming back to this over and over again, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. 
We are to remember what God has done. You know, for me, I could pick countless stories from my life where I could say, God came through. He provided. But one always stands out in my mind. Back in 2010, Melissa and I headed off to seminary in Pittsburgh, and we didn't have a penny to our names. We literally had, we maybe we had like a thousand bucks in the bank, okay? That was about it. Seminary was going to cost about 140 to $150,000 over the next three years. I wasn't planning to take a job, neither was Melissa. We were just planning to go on faith and pray that the Lord would provide for us in the midst of that. Well, as that first year went by, the Lord kept providing. Things would appear, we'd checks we just didn't had no idea i got the largest tax return i'd ever had in my life things like that just kept happening it was miraculous but around about november um 2011 so i was just over a year in the bank account started to look really small all the numbers in there were not looking good and it was november in pittsburgh i don't know if anyone's from pittsburgh but november in pittsburgh is pretty grim you know it starts to get gray and cold you even get snow at that stage and i was doing this thing called cpe where i a clinical pastoral education where i would have to drive all over pittsburgh and again if you've never been to pittsburgh the middle is actually really nice they've, they've actually very rejuvenated now but when you drive around the outskirts it's miserable miserable because you've got all these old steel districts places where steel was big in the 70s 80s and so on and then in the 80s it just died and so you know, I'd be in towns like McKeesport driving around in the gray of the wind the sleet visiting people who were dying and it was a tough time and then on top of this my bank account was starting to look really small I saying God what are you doing what are you doing I trusted you to come and to do this well, one day I was at a hospice center visiting some patients and my CPE uh, supervisor was there and he would meet with me about once a month just to check in and see how I was doing. And uh, he, he sat me down in this room, I still remember, I can picture it in my head, and he asked me, how are you doing, Jonathan? Well, I couldn't contain anymore, I just started to cry. I wasn't doing well, I started to cry. And he said, what's going on? And I explained to him and eventually he said, you know, how does it feel to be out of control? Because all the patients you're visiting are out of control. They're dying, terminal diseases, out of control. And now you're out of control. And ultimately, in one sense, we're always really all out of control if we think about it, right? Things are beyond our control, and especially in the area of our finances. We think that we'll always have money, but many of you may have learned already that actually that's not always the case. It's not always the case, and it wasn't for me right then. And I had to swallow my pride at that time because one of our donors had said, look, if you ever need more money, come back to us. Come back to us or come back to me and, and let me know. I'd love to give you more. Of course, being proud and, you know, <laughs> didn't want to do that. It's hard asking for money. Um, but I eventually I emailed this lady and I said, look, here's the situation. And she emailed back right away and said, got it covered. Got it covered. The rest of seminary. And we had enough each month from then on to make it the remaining 14 or 15 months. And we ended up coming out of seminary without debt. The Lord had provided in the midst of that. And guess what I learned? What was the biggest lesson I learned in seminary? Was it the Hebrew alphabet? <laughs> no, I could sing that to you right now if you want, to the tune of Twinkle Twinkle. And no, I'll spare you that. No, the biggest thing I learned in seminary, and every time someone asks me this, I say this every time was that I needed to trust God. He was always had my back. And what better lesson do you need as you prepare for pastoral ministry? That God's got your back, right? He's got your back. 
That was the biggest lesson I learned. And I am trying hard not to forget that, even in times of prosperity, as I would put it. But it's not just remembering what God's done in our lives or throughout history. It's also remembering who we are in him. Hear that, okay? Because sometimes we can just rely on those stories from the past. That's, and those, some of those are really good stories, trust me. But we also need to remember who we are in him, that you are a child of God. We talked about this over the last few weeks, that you are dearly loved by him. He has adopted into you, into his family, if you've chosen to follow him. And as a result, you are an heir of the king. Think about that. You are an heir of the king. Now, do you think the king has enough to provide for you? Thoughts? Comments? All right, he's a king, right? He's got enough. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, it tells us in the Psalms. He's got enough, and he loves you. So do you think he's ever going to let you down? He's not going to let you down. He's always going to give you what you need at exactly the right time. Okay, remember that. So do not forget, but remember. Second reading, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 19. We set our hope on God by not being haughty, but by being generous. A transformed life is extraordinarily generous. It's characterized by generosity. Hear me. It's characterized by generosity. It's not a question of are they generous or are they not? They are generous. Look at verses 17 through 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. If I were to summarize this passage I would just say it's do good works and be generous. Do good works and be generous. Not a bad uh, kind of philosophy for life in a sense, but you know, many of us struggle with this because we are haughty. I love saying that word, particularly with a British accent. I think it sounds better. Haughty, right? You have to pronounce the T. Um, we are haughty. Now, what does haughty mean? Well, I went to the dictionary just to make sure I don't get this wrong. And in Merriam-Webster, it says this, blatantly and disdainfully proud blatantly and disdainfully proud, having or showing an attitude of superiority and contempt for people or things to be, uh, to things perceived to be inferior, haughty. Now, many of us, I think, are not generous or prone to do good works because we believe that we are better than others, that they don't deserve our help or they don't deserve our money. We, we pass judgment on them. Or perhaps it's because we even believe that we're better than God. We like to play God and decide who it is we should be generous with and how we should be generous as well, that we know best. Well, in his book, Redeeming Money, Paul David Tripp writes this, as with everything else in your life, God calls you to surrender all your money goals to the grander purpose of his mission of redemptive generosity. God calls you and me to make his invisible generosity visible in the way that we think about and use the money he places in our hands. This starts with accepting that your money is his money. Having generously promised to meet every one of your needs and to bless you with more than you could ever deserve, he now calls you to open your heart as he has opened his and give willingly, joyfully, and liberally. Do you notice it begins with this recognition that everything we own is God's. What is it we say? All things come from you, O Lord. Yeah, 
of your own have we given you. Nothing we own actually belongs to us. Nothing. It's all given to us by God. We are stewards of that. That's Old Testament. If you don't believe me, let's go to New Testament. James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. I don't know about you, but every means every, right? (laughs) In our house, we're very careful with our kids occasionally. You know, they like to use the words, you know, every or never or all the time. It's like, no, that's not the case. But in this case, it's every good gift. You know, if we haven't recognized that everything we own belongs to God, if you've never done that, then your life is never going to be truly transformed. It just won't. Only then can you truly be generous as well. To quote Paul David Tripp again, he writes, if we don't start with surrender, even if we're in debt, we will use money in a way that God never intended. In this way, maybe many of us have more money problems than we realize. We think we're okay because we're able to pay the price of our pleasures, but we're not okay because what shapes our money matters is a spirit of ownership rather than a spirit of surrender. The first step in money sanity is surrendering to the glory of one greater than you, the one greater than you. So we have to not forget, but remember, we are not to be haughty, but to be generous. And then thirdly, in our gospel reading, Matthew chapter 6, we are not to serve money, but we are to serve God. You see, a transformed life uses wealth as a tool for mission, not a tool for me, 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 right? A tool for mission, not me, me, me. In our gospel reading today from Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says these words. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And he goes on in verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I wonder, would you say that you're serving God or serving money? Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let's ask ourselves some questions that perhaps will help us. First one, when you have extra money, how do you dream of using it? Second one, does it make you happier to use your money for your own purposes and pleasure, or to offer it to God for his purposes and the work of his kingdom? Third, do you find it way easier to get than to give? Next, do you envy the person next to you who has resources that you don't have? Do you tend to spend more than you should while telling yourself that you would give more if you could? Does the level of your commitment, uh, sorry, your level of your contentment rise and fall with the amount of money in your bank account? Are you able to celebrate what you've been given while at the same time looking without compassion at someone clearly needier than you? Are you ready, willing, and quick to give? Is there a material possession that you've bought that you could never share or give away? Do you look for needs others have that you can alleviate by selling or giving away resources that you don't really need? Are you glad to give, even in seasons when you don't have much? You know, you and I have a problem, okay? 
we're wealthy. <laughs> and you might say, well, that's not a problem, John. That sounds great. <laughs> Love being wealthy. But we have a problem. And if you say, well, I'm not really wealthy, pretty much by sitting in this room, you are in the wealthiest 1% or 2% in the globe, in the world. That puts you in that bracket. Whether you believe it or not, you go look it up for yourself. It puts you in that bracket. And Jesus said, it is harder for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, I don't know about you, but I think camels are pretty big, right? And needles are pretty small, okay? And that sounds like almost impossible. And the point that Jesus makes is not that it's impossible, but it's really hard for someone with wealth to enter the kingdom of hard, uh, that kingdom of heaven. You see, it's almost like a curse to be affluent. You and I are almost cursed by having wealth. What do I mean by that? Well, you see, on each day, we don't necessarily need to pray, give us this day our daily bread, and mean it, right? You and I can go, well, I'm just going to go to Publix. <laughs> I got my debit card. I got some cash in my wallet. I'm going to go to Publix and get some daily bread, right? Well, maybe... We get distracted because we have wealth by the many options that wealth has given us. You know, I could take this vacation or I could send my kid to that or I could do this thing or that thing. And it becomes a distraction from following the Lord. Or perhaps we have the resources to try and make meaningful lives through money. We try and buy uh, meaningfulness in our lives, don't we? We try and buy meaning. Or we have so much money that we believe we don't have enough. It seems that the more money we have, the more or the less satisfied we are. Or because we have money, we live in areas of affluence where people have even more than us. You may have noticed that on Daniel Arnd, it's kind of, there's, you know, you begin in the condominium perhaps, right? And then they kind of, you know, they've made it so then you can buy the town home. But you shouldn't be satisfied with that, right? Because then you've got to move to the, you know, the, the bigger home, the single home, right? But of course, that's not enough. Maybe you should move down that end of the island. And then, of course, there's always the park side, right? You could go over there. Oh, no, hold on. Not just the park side. We've got to go to Captain's Island, right? Not just Captain's Island. They're building the retreat now as well. They keep finding more land that's more exclusive to make us think that I need more, more, more. There's always someone with more, though, right? Does affluence have to be a curse, though? It does not have to be a curse. Listen to this quote. Money will either bless you or curse you. It will be a tool in the hands of a God of grace, or it will be a doorway to bad and dangerous things, like two sides of a physical coin. There are two spiritual sides to money. Each side calls to you. Each side holds before you a vision and promises. Each side asks not just for the investment of your money, but for the allegiance of your heart. <laughs> Not just the investment of your money, but the allegiance of your heart. Is money a blessing or a curse to you, would you say? Is it a blessing or a curse? Is it a tool for mission or a tool for me, me, me? Which one is it? So three things, not this, but that. We are to not forget, but to remember. We are to not be haughty, but to be generous. And we are to not serve money, but to serve God. And what are we to make of all this? Well, I want to ask, being honest, would you say you've set your hope in God or you've set your hope in your wealth? Have you surrendered your life to him? And through surrendering, I mean, have you surrendered every single part of your life, even your bank account? Even your bank account. Probably the last part that becomes converted, someone once said, right, is a person's wallet. But a basic part of being a follower of Jesus is being a generous, regular, and cheerful giver. 
the Old Testament calls this the tithe, which was 10%. The first fruit of your income would go. The first 10% would be written to the Lord, okay, and given to the Lord. And in reality, it was actually 22% if you did the math and go back to the Old Testament, look at it and go, wow, actually we're supposed to give 22% each year of their giving. But this is just a beginning. Listen to what Randy Alcorn writes in his book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity. He says, how much is generous? There's no one-size-fits-all answer. When a friend of mine was trying to figure out how much he should give monthly, he decided to give at least as much as his house payment. He told me, if I can't afford to give that much, then I can't afford to live in a nice, nice house either. If you've never tithed, that's the principle laid out for giving in the Old Testament, start there. Then begin to stretch your generosity. The first few steps beyond the tithe can be particularly exciting as we give God his claim on the other 90%, which also belongs to him. If 10%, why not 12%? If 12%, why not 15%? If 15%, why not 20 or 30 or 90%? Why not choose to live at a certain income level and give everything above that to God? Final question. And this was given to me by a friend in this room. If you were to take the amount that you give away and multiply it by 10, could you and your family live on that amount? If you were to take the amount that you give away and multiply it by 10, could you and your family live on that amount? It's a good question to ponder, isn't it? Friends, I want to challenge us to become more and more generous with our giving. I have a feeling that this is perhaps the biggest idol in the culture within which we live, is our money. And it's hard. It's hard to understand sometimes because we have so much of it, right? To understand why that would be the case. But like I said, I think the more we have, the harder it is to give away. I had a conversation with one of my children recently. I'll finish with this. And uh, I don't know how I'm going to tell this story without giving away who it is, but they're not in the room, so that's good news. <laughs> and this child has just got their first job. And that job comes with a paycheck, which is fantastic. And uh, I said to this child, you know, have you thought about giving away 10% of your income? And the child did the math. Wait, well, man, that's a lot of money. <laughs> and this child's only earning 100 bucks a month, so it was 10 bucks a month. And they looked at me and they said, you know, if I earn more money, it would be easier. True or false? False, right? I mean, giving 10 bucks to us sounds like a piece of cake, right? But what about when you earn 100,000 a year, giving 10,000 or more? What about when you earn 200,000 a year, giving 20,000? Not easier, right? What about when you earn 500,000 or you come into an inheritance of a million dollars and it's 100,000? Easy? I mean, it can be, right? If your heart's right with the Lord, it can be like, amen, I want to give that money away. I want to give to the Lord because he has given me more than I can give a return. And guess what? I can't take it with me. Most of us haven't learned that lesson yet, thank goodness. All right? <laughs> but guess what? You can't take it with you, friends. So be generous with what the Lord has given to you. Let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit, come move in our hearts in this area of money. Lord, I feel like this is a huge ultra, uh, a huge, a huge idol in our culture and one that we struggle with, Lord. And so, Lord, I pray that you will come and convict us where we need to be convicted and challenge us where we need to be challenged, but to always remind us that we are dearly loved by you. 
and that you own the cattle on a thousand hills. You have more than enough for us. So even when we give more than we think we can, you are the God who continues to support us and give us all that we truly need. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.